What a blessing to come together to sing God's praises, to share life as God is working among our community, all the different things he's doing. What a blessed time. And as we come to this word that God's given us in Genesis 19, I have to say that this is a passage that really reaches my heart. Because Genesis 19, I believe, is meant to be read together with Genesis 18. We'll see a lot of similarities, actually, between the two in how God comes to Abraham and how God also comes to Lot. And sometimes my life is like Abraham, where I'm walking well with the Lord, delighting in his presence and interceding for his people. But much more often, my life is like the messiness of lots. And as we struggle to learn to follow God, I imagine that's true for many of you, that our lives oftentimes look a lot more like the messiness of Lot's life and his family uh, than what we saw with Abraham in Genesis 18. And yet here we see that God is good. If you spend time praying with Elder Gordon, one of the uh, prayers that he prays a lot, if you come Sunday morning and pray with us before the service, you will hear Elder Gordon pray that we would see that God is a good God. And that is my prayer this morning. As we look at Genesis chapter 18 and 19, that we will see that God is a good God. And so let's turn together to him in prayer. Father God, thank you for this word that you've given us here at the beginning of your word as we look in the book of Genesis. And we see how you entered into a world, a messy world, a world full of sinfulness, of servants that are not so faithful themselves. And yet, we see grace, we see mercy, we see your love poured out upon your people. And that is a great grace to us and a great comfort. For we know when we look at our lives, there is a great deal of messiness, of sin and wickedness in our lives, in our families, in our communities. I pray, Lord, that as we come now to Genesis 19 and we look at this account, the account of the man Lot, a righteous man, but a man living in very difficult circumstances, that we will see here your grace and yet also understand how you call us to come out and live as righteous men and women, testimonies for you in this land, that your grace and your glory might be seen in us. And we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Let me begin this morning by asking the question, what does it mean that God is a good God? How is God good? Well, we could think of the fruits of the Spirit, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. 
These are fruits of the Spirit because they come from the Spirit as the Spirit works in us. And the Spirit produces those things that are in accordance with His nature. The Spirit is good. The Spirit produces good things. It produces good fruit in our lives. And as we mature in Christ, we see more and more that good being brought out of our own lives. We see more and more that the good that does come from our lives comes from God's Spirit and not by our own strength. But God, working in my life, brings me to live a life that is more faithful and pleasing to Him and good. We also see the goodness of God in His Word. God tells us over and over through Scripture that He is good, and we see so many facets of His goodness. And why does God tell us that He's good? He tells us He is good not because He's trying to praise Himself and help us see how wonderful He is for His own sake, but that as we see the goodness of God, we would be convinced that He is worthy of our allegiance, that we ought to follow Him, that we ought to live lives in obedience to Him. And right here in Genesis chapter 18 and 19, we see one of those aspects of God's goodness and how He works with His people. And last week, Elder Gordon led us through Genesis chapter 18, which together with Genesis 19 gives a very interesting contrast that helps us see some of the goodness of God in terms of how He cares for, how He works with, how He partners and comes alongside His people. And so look at Genesis. I ask you to turn back in your scriptures to Genesis 18, where uh, Elder Gordon led us through last week as God appeared to Abraham. And here's where, you know, I have a fondness for paper Bibles. I think uh, using these is a little bit easier than swiping on the phone. And here's one way. On my Bible, I can see Genesis chapter 18 and 19 at the same time because they're on two facing pages. And that'll be helpful here because I want us to take a look at how God comes to his people in both these passages. And there is a lot of similarity. In fact, the similarity is so striking, I think that we're meant to see that contrast between these two men. But also because of how, where they are in their relationship with God is going to be very important in how God partners with them, how God works with them. So look at Genesis chapter 18. And here, Abraham sees God as he sits at the door of his tent by the oaks of Mamre. And so both Abraham and Lot are sitting in the places of their respective dwelling. If you flip over to Genesis 19, you see that uh, Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And so both of them are in the place that they dwell, sitting. And that idea of sitting is an important one because uh, that word that's translated sitting, yeshav, is a word that can mean either to sit or dwell. And those two ideas are very linked in Scripture. Where you sit, where you inhabit, where you, where you dwell is that place that, you know, you belong there. There's a sense that this is the place that kind of is part of who you are. 
and Abraham is sitting in his tent, Lot is sitting in the gate of Sodom. Then we see that when the Lord or his messengers come before Abraham and Lot, they have a very similar response. Both Abraham and Lot rise to greet their guests, and they humble themselves before these visitors. And you have to get a sense of, of, of what's going on here, because both Abraham and Lot are a men of substance. In fact, you, re, you, you remember why they divided from one another. They had grown so prosperous that their two establishments, their two households, were not able to dwell in the land together because the land was not able to sustain both the flocks of Abraham and the flocks of Lot. And if you remember from a few passages back, when Abraham went to rescue Lot, he had led forth the 318 trained men of his household, and those men undoubtedly also had families. And so these men are well established. But you see now how they treat these divine messengers. Somehow or another, they must have been able to recognize the divine origin that these two messengers come from. Because Abraham, who would have been the patriarch of his family, rushes forward and he humbles himself, bowing to the ground before these men. And Lot, who is probably similarly situated in terms of his prosperity to Abraham, does the same as he's sitting there in the gate of Sodom, where he bows himself with his face to the earth, and he says, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet, and you may rise up early and go on your way. And so both of them recognize these messengers and recognize that they are sent from God, and they show deference and humility to the messengers of God, and they show them hospitality. And so both of these wealthy men, both of these patriarchs of their family, both of these righteous men respond in very similar ways to these divine messengers. And I want to make one correction from one thing that Elder Gordon said last week, and I remember talking to him immediately after the service. He said, I misspoke, I shouldn't have said that, where he said, Abraham and Lot have different faiths. But what they have is the same faith but where they are in terms of their maturity or their relationship with God at this point in time is very different. And so what we will see is that they have these similar responses and they're presented similarly in, in encountering God's messengers. And yet there is some very distinct differences between the two that are intimately connected with some of the choices that they have made. And so Lot, like Abraham, is sitting in the place of his dwelling. And yet this is significantly different that, than what we see with respect to Abraham as he sits in the door of his tent. If you remember back in Genesis chapter 13, when Abraham and Lot separated from one another, we saw that the text said that Abraham went moved his tent as far as Sodom. And he was moving his dwelling place closer to the cities of the valley of which Sodom is one. 
And now, by the time we've gone to Genesis 19, Lot is sitting in the very gate of Sodom. And there's a significance to that, right? Um, some of you may remember when we were going through the book of Ruth, that when Boaz went to make that business transaction, he went to the gate of the city. That was a place where the men of substance sat. That was where the movers and the shakers of the city were. Because unless you had the means to do so, you couldn't just spend the day sitting in the gate of the city. You'd be out working. But not only that, uh, that would be a good place to transact business because that would be where the other wealthy people were, the other people of prominence. And so when we see Lot and he is introduced as sitting in the gate of Sodom, we, we know that something significant has happened. He's not just now been moving his tent towards the valley of the city and even going as far as Sodom. He's now entered into Sodom. And he's an integral part of its life. And Sodom is an integral part of uh, Lot's community. It's become part of uh, his community, part of his um, culture. And its culture now has become part of who he is. And it is here that he meets these messengers from God. Now, let's take a little bit of time to see from God's perspective what is going on here? How does God come to Abraham? God comes to Abraham, and there's a very interesting dynamic. And we see, actually, a very interesting picture of the Christian life here. Because Abraham, in some senses, is helpless, right? God comes to him, and you remember that message that God brings to him. This time, next year, you will have a son. And this is that long-awaited heir that Abraham has been waiting for all his life. And yet, God comes to him now with this promise at the point of time when from a reproductive standpoint, he's a dead man. And God is able to do what we cannot do for ourselves. He gives life to those who are dead. And just as Abraham is dead reproductively, we are all dead spiritually. And yet God is able to bring life to us. But not only does God come with this promise, there's also a very significant development in the relationship between God and Abraham. And he says this, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. What do we see here? God is making Abraham his part. What he is accomplishing here in this world, he will do together with Abraham. And this is an invitation to Abraham to participate in the work of God. And what God is inviting Abraham to do here is to be part of his work of salvation. I'm going to down to Sodom to see if what has been reported to me is true. Now, does God need to do that? Is it that God doesn't I mean, you know, he's so high up in heaven that he can't see down into Sodom to see what is going on there. We know that's not true. God knows what's going on in Sodom. But what is the message? What gets through? What's the elocution of God reporting this to Abraham? It's an invitation to Abraham. You know the work 
that I've called you to do. You know the relationship that you have with me. And because you are now part of my family and we're partners in this work, I'm not going to hide from you what I'm about to do. And so knowing who I am and knowing where I'm going, how are you going to participate in this work? And of course we know that Abraham has already gone out to save Lot one time when raiders had come and carried off Lot and his family along with uh, the cities that had rebelled against the other kings. And it's an invitation for Abraham to intercede on behalf of his nephew. And so Elder Gordon led us through last week that passage where Abraham, in a sense, negotiates with God. And the way that he negotiates is by referring to the character of God. Don't you know who you are? A holy God. And would a holy God sweep away the righteous with the unrighteous? And from a certain standpoint, there's no unrighteous, right? And so in one sense, there's no hope here. And as we see, actually, what we've read already this morning in Genesis chapter 19, it would be easy to say, God would be justified in sweeping away both Lot and the city of Sodom. But Abraham comes to intercede for Lot. Now we come to chapter 19. And the thing that came to my mind as I thought about how, how do we understand what is going on here in Genesis chapter 19. Now in one part we can do some of the same thing. What is the purpose for which these angels now come to Sodom? Is, is God not able to bring judgment upon the city unless he sends the messengers there? Well, God's omnipotent. He doesn't need to go down to Sodom to see what's going on there. He doesn't need to send messengers to Sodom to sweep it away. All of that's unnecessary. But again, there is an effect, an illocution that God desires to bring about, to produce by presenting the question. What, what is the illocution in this instance? What's the message that we're to get? How many of you are familiar with uh, that famous scene from Der Untergang. Uh, that's the scene where Hitler is like ranting uh, about what's going on and, and he's in a bunker with his generals. And you know, this is a meme that's been played out in you know, many different, L let me get a show of hands. How many of you have, have seen that? that uh... Oh my goodness, this is like surprisingly few. Okay, this illustration might not work. <laughs> So in, in, in Der Utergang, uh, Hitler is in a bunker and he is furious because he's ordered this counterattack. Steiner, right? Steiner's supposed to come with his troops and make a certain, but at this point, Steiner's troops actually have been annihilated and uh, he's not able to make the attack that Hitler's commanding he makes. And, and he just goes on this rant and you see his hand trembling as he, orders everyone out of the room except for four generals, and then he just lays into them. Well, what's going on there? The end is coming, right? The Russians are coming on the Eastern Front. The Allies are proceeding along the Western Front. And Berlin is being surrounded. And they can see 
the end coming. And there's a sense of doom. No way to escape. The end is inevitable. What's happening here in Sodom? In one sense, Sodom is a picture of every civilization that has ever existed in this world or ever will exist, including our own. The end is coming. This world will be brought to an end. And if you have your eyes open, you can see it. And the blindness that the angels strike those men with is very symbolic in a sense. Because at the moment that God has sent messengers to judge the city of Sodom and to see if it is, it is as wicked as has been reported, the men of the city have gone out. And they've said, bring them out that we might know them basically rape them, sodomize them, which is where that word, that word comes from. And there's an irony there, right? Because these messengers are here to judge Sodom, to see if it's as wicked. And Sodom doesn't disappoint. They put their wickedness on full display. And you would have to say the judgment is just. But why does God send these messengers to Sodom? He didn't need to. He didn't need to send the messengers to see or to destroy Sodom. But do you see why they have come? This is an errand of mercy. It's an errand of mercy to Lot. It's an errand that forces Lot to confront the wickedness that he has been surrounded by. Because he's a righteous man. But he's moved his tent towards the valley, cities of the valley. Now to the very gates of Lot. And now sitting and participating in the life of Sodom. Second Peter chapter 2. Verses 6 to 10 tell us a little bit about Lot's experience there. It says there, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. And so what's going on with Lot here? He has been living there. And as Peter tells us, tormenting his righteous soul day after day as he lived among them. But as he's living in the city that was to be condemned because of their wickedness, he was also, in a sense, inuring himself to that same wickedness. 
Because as we see here in this narrative, there's kind of a love-hate relationship going on. Peter shows us the righteous side of Lot, right? And so it says that his righteous soul was being tormented day after day as he lived among them. And so by this time in the text, Lot is living and participating in the life of Sodom. And his righteous, the righteous side of him is being tormented, but it's a voluntary torment, is it not? No one's forcing Lot to live there. And as the angels tell him, flee the city. It's about to be destroyed. Do we see what's going on in terms of Lot's heart? There's a righteous aspect, certainly, where what he saw was painful, and yet he loved the city. And not loved the city for the sake of the people, but there were things in the city that he loved. The lifestyle that the city brought, the culture that it had, that was something that brought Lot to desire the city, so much so that he thought, I cannot leave the city. If I leave it, I'll perish. I can't live without it. And you know, is that really that different from how you and I live today? Can we live without the city, its conveniences, its leisure, its temptations? When God sent the messengers into the city, what he did was he forced Lot to make a choice. And you can see it's right on the cusp. The angels, by saying no, will stay here in the town square. Now, number one, were they in any danger? They're not in any danger from mere human beings. But this forced Lot to confront the wickedness that was in the city, and he knew he had to act. And then the men of the town coming out. Did the angels need his protection? No. But it pressed upon Lot, which side will you choose? And thank God, he chooses rightly. But even so, he can't tear himself away from the city. And his family loves the city. And it's just by a hair's breadth you can see. He's compelled to flee. I think we can learn a thing or two as we see God's compassion for this man, Lot. Because when I look at my life, and I look, what kind of temptations do I succumb to? What is it that I desire? Is it that every breath I breathe, I breathe for you, Jesus, as the song says? No, that's not true. I breathe so much of it for myself. There's so much in this world that I love and I pursue and I sell my soul for. And isn't that true for all of us? There's so much here that we love, and we're only slowly learning to trust and to love God, and there's so many things that tear us away. 
And God here performs a radical surgery in Lot's life in the nick of time. Because that righteous man had been sucked into the cesspool of iniquity. And it offered him things that he loved. And so there is the unrighteous side of Lot that is being drawn in, just like I'm drawn into so many things in our culture, in our society. But God rescues him. And we see here the goodness of God. If you're one of his, he won't leave you behind. Your salvation is not dependent on your strength. It's not dependent upon you holding firmly to God, but that God holds firmly to you and will not let go. Do we see here the goodness of our God? The great love, mercy, and compassion. If you are his child, you will not be lost. And can we, like Abraham, not condemn the culture we live in? Not look down on those who are caught in the entrapment of one sin or another, knowing that we ourselves are oftentimes entrapped by those same things. But can we, like God, have a heart, like Abraham, have the heart to rescue the lost? And so we see here the goodness of God bringing Lot out when there was no ability in Lot's heart to come out of the city. But at the same time, we also see here, our choices do matter, don't they? Yes, God will hold on to you. But Lot's decision has enormous consequences for him and his family. We see that as Lot flees, because of the direction his life has taken, he comes out with his life. Just like Jesus will say many years later, Many people will be saved, but everything else will be lost. And Lot ends up living in a cave in the section of this passage we uh, were not able to read together because of time, but we see he loses everything. And the consequence of deciding to live in Sodom and accept all that Sodom had offered has devastating effects upon his family. Because yes, Lot escapes, but having lived in Sodom and tasted of those passing, ephemeral, transitory, and transparent delights, his wife is unable to leave. Her heart is now caught up with the city, and she turns back. And the famous story of how Lot's wife turns into a pillar of salt. And there is the enjoinder, remember Lot's wife. And we see that he himself loses his way in many ways. Now, why does Lot make that decision? Not so dissimilar from ourselves, right? It's a great career move. 
when back in chapter 13, Lot is making that decision. Do I go to this side or do I go to this side? Well, this side has the city. This side has the resources. This will be good for prosperity. I'll go this way. And why does he get attracted to the city? Why does he move towards the cities of the valley, even to the gates of Sodom, and then dwell within it? There's love for what this world has to offer. We might have the best of motives and intentions as we're making our decisions. What kind of career will I pursue? Oh, I want to provide for my family. I want to make use of my talents. I want to give to the church. I want to do good for others. I want to reach out to those in the city. And yet, if we do not keep our priorities, our focus upon God, and learn to turn away from these temptations, we can make the same mistakes that Lot did. And in fact, oftentimes it's having those reasonable justifications, those good motives, are things that can lead us into our very disobedience to God. I mean, you know, think about uh, where our missions agencies are today. It might be a surprise to you, but I would say the majority, in fact, the vast majority of missions agencies today have completely lost the gospel because there's so many important things that they're doing. They're feeding the hungry. They're clothing those without uh, resources. They're helping the poor. Uh, many people were shocked a number of years ago when World Vision um, began accepting uh, lesbian and same-sex marriages within its organization. But they hadn't been preaching the gospel for years because they were engaged in feeding the hungry. And similarly, the good intentions, the good desires that we have for family, for career, for church, can easily become the reason why we stop treating God as God and why we stop believing in his gospel? Do we skip church to prepare for exams or to further our careers? I just, myself, when I was going to college, a lot of different options in front of me. I didn't even think about ministry. It's a long story how God got me here. But I wouldn't have thought about it. It just wouldn't have been the kind of thing that I would have thought was worthwhile doing. Our youth, are we preparing them to follow God in college, in our families? Is that the priority? I mean, what do you spend more time on? You spend more time on making sure that your kid can get into Harvard or some other good school. I won't mention them because we have a lot of people in those schools here. But is it more important that they get into a school like that? Or is it more important that you've prepared them spiritually to go into an environment which is certainly going to challenge their faith and tempt them to walk away from God. What do we spend our time doing? And we see that Lot has been very influenced by his culture, as undoubtedly we're influenced 
by ours. We see at the end of the passage that we read this morning that when the men press in upon Lot, he offers his daughters. Now, how could Lot get to such a point? Well, what was the temptation in his culture? It was a sexual licentiousness, very similar to what's in our culture. And so he'd been inured, he'd become accustomed to those types of sins. And in his mind, perhaps, not such a serious sin anymore. And we see that that loss of moral compass in that area because of the challenge of his culture pressing in on him in that area, you see the devastating effects of that in his family. How he would offer his daughters. How later, at the end of this passage, his daughters commit incest with him. The sins of the culture that he voluntarily went into. Not because he was attracted by those things. His soul was tormented, but his soul had also become accustomed to sin. And sin that was abominable to God. And so, although Lot is saved, we see that some very precious things are lost. And that's the challenge before us, right? Most of you sitting in here, I would say, have a relationship with God. Are we going to prioritize that relationship? Are we going to be tempted by this culture? We have to be in this world, but are we going to be of this world? Do we desire the prominent places in this world? Do we want to have that place in the gate? What's more important to you? Your walk and relationship with God, serving Him, devoting your life, one, our seminaries. I remember when I was in seminary and uh, one of the challenges of our professors to those of us who were then students at the time, some of you need to consider going overseas. Okay, I ended up here. <laughs> but why was the seminary professor challenging those of us in the class about going overseas? Because life in America is a whole lot more comfortable than life in Papua New Guinea. But God calls missionaries to go to Papua New Guinea. What is your priority? Where do you want to be? Are you making God and his gospel your priority or having a prominent place in the society, having a secure place, having a, a rich place? And if your choice is a ladder, remember Lot and remember Lot's wife. But God is good and God is merciful. And so let us place our trust in him. Let's close with a word of prayer.